messieurs, bonjour. Nous ne sommes qu'à moitié surpris de vous voir aussi nombreux aujourd'hui pour ce moment un peu particulier. Si on doit faire un rapide historique, on a reçu notamment Radiota en 2017, on avait reçu Volker Schlondorf l'année dernière. Cette année, nous avons eu déjà le privilège hier d'avoir un moment exceptionnel en présence de M. Abderrahman Sissako, qui est ici ce soir, aujourd'hui, pardon, cet après-midi, que je vous demande de saluer. Merci beaucoup, très l'heure, M. Sissako. Et donc aujourd'hui, euh, pour animer cette séquence, nous recevons déjà une, une autre légende. Il est auteur, réalisateur, producteur, il est aussi maître de conférences, c'est un grand écrivain, il sort un magnifique, une histoire de cinéma actuellement. Voici M. Michel Simon. Voilà, écoutez, je suis très heureux d'abord de, de revenir au Luxembourg. J'étais l'année dernière pour euh, Volker Schlendorf, cette année pour euh, Abderrahman Sissako et Mike Lee, euh, que je connais depuis euh, très très longtemps, depuis plus de 30 ans, 35 ans. J'avais découvert Bleak Moments à Paris quand il est venu, euh, quand il a présenté ce film. Et euh, évidemment, c'est un, un des grands cinéastes de, contemporains, euh, non seulement cinéaste, mais aussi... Euh, auteur de théâtre, de nombreuses pièces, beaucoup de films à la télévision, aussi beaux mais moins vus, plus vus et à la fois moins vus que ses films de cinéma. Il a également mis en scène lui-même des pièces de théâtre de, de Pinter ou de Beckett. Euh, il a fait évidemment de très grands films, et, euh, une palme d'or à Cannes, un lion d'or à Venise. Donc je suis très heureux de, de le rencontrer à nouveau et on salue... Mike Lee. It's um, very nice to be back in this cinema again, because I was here not very long ago with my film Vera Drake, which was screened whilst my production of the opera The Pirates of Penzance was on down the road at the Opera House. Uh, and it's very nice to be back in Luxembourg again. And um, if you get bored during this discussion, please leave. <laughs> But first, before we start, um, we have a surprise for you. If you would like to have a seat, we have uh, a film homage uh, about your career. Thank you so much for being here. Sit on the arse. 
Oh, shut up. You shut up. It's all rubbish, I know that. Don't show yourself off a bit. Well, racist. I'm up to here with a lot of you. Do you want to come in for a cup of tea? All right, with you, love. Would you describe yourself as a pitiful person? Yeah, I'm a life and soul. I mean, you don't know, but you might already have had the happiest moment in your whole fucking life, and all you've got to look forward to is sickness and purgatory. Oh, shit. Somewhere out there, and we don't know where, is your birth she may have other children. She might be dead. We just don't know. But what we do know is that at the time she gave you up for adoption, she was under the impression that she would probably never see you again. Now, as I know you're very well aware, the law has changed since then, and you are now legally entitled to seek your birth mother out. But the snag is, she may not want to see you. I fear that dear Mr. Gilbert has run out of ideas. No. In 1881, it was a magic coin. Before that, it was a magic lozenge. In this instance, it is a magic potion. Chorus. If you want to know who we are, we are gentlemen of Japan. One, One two, two, three. three. <laughs> oh, you and your world of topsy-turvydom. You never know what's going to happen, do you? You might win the lottery tomorrow. Tell me no secrets. Tell me some lies. about I know why you're here why are we here because of what I do what is it that you do Mrs Drake I help young girls out you help young girls out most they're gonna turn to they got no one I help them out have you ever had a driving lesson before yeah <laughs> no it wasn't really lesson What's your love life? How is my love life? You okay with that? Oh, yeah. Good for you. Gee, you won't take life seriously, Poppy. Could be joking. Just want you to be happy, that's all. I am happy. I love my life. I've got a great job, got amazing friends. Yeah, it can be tough at times. That's part of it, isn't it? We're very lucky. Yeah, you are. But you deserve it. You're both such lovely people. Hello. Mum, Dad, this is Katie. Hello. This is Tom and Jerry. Hello. Hello. Tom and Jerry, that's brilliant. <laughs> You, Tom? Yeah, Buenos Aires. Yeah, because I thought, well, you went there, didn't you, the two of you, Argentina? No, I didn't, no. Didn't you? He was a good-looking man when he was young, was he? Mm -hmm. Life's not always kind, is it? Mr. Turner seems to have taken leave of form altogether. Turner. Clearly losing his eyesight. The piece I here present, which Mr. Turner has just sent. I believe you to be a man of great spirit 
and fine feeling. We are on the brink of liberty. We demand that our suffering cease. Now is the time for action. Now the corrupt order will come crashing down. Now, Mike, uh, my first question really is improvised about uh, these excerpts that we have just seen. Uh, what strikes me is that, uh, of course, there are films that you wanted to make but that you did not make, but I, I'm sure all these films you wanted to make them, which is quite unique because a lot of directors, sometimes they have to make a film just for material reasons, or, but not with you. You have always been in control of what you wanted to do and you sacrifice sometimes things in order to make your own films. Do, yes. Am I right? Am I right? You are right. And, uh, and uh, I, I think, I feel that I have been extremely lucky. Um, I've actually made 21 films, um, full-length um, dramatic films. Um, some for television and mostly for the, for the cinema. And the great thing is, nobody has ever interfered with any of them um, uh, and told us what to do or who to cast or what it should be about or to change the ending to make it happier or any of that sort of stuff. Um, <laughs> uh, I, and I have been able to make these films absolutely from my heart and my instinct and my inclinations and my preoccupations uh, and I think it's a I have been um, blessed really uh, uh, because it is you know I, I as you say some people start to make a film and then people mess it up you know and um, it becomes compromised in various ways so yes and I appreciate your mentioning it now um Baudelaire talked about a painter, Constantin Guy, in his pieces on art, and he called it the painter of modern life. And I think in many ways you are the painter of modern life, but your last two films, and even before, like It's a Great Big Shame, which was a play, like Topsy Turvy, like Vera Drake, uh, you made films, and Turner, of course, and Peter Lou, you made films in costume, period pieces, except there are Drake, which corresponds to your period where you were alive, young, a young man, the 50s, uh, 1950, in fact. You were uh, how old in 1950? Seven. Seven. All the others are, even this, uh, it's a great big shame, which is in two parts, but one part is in the Victorian period. Topsy-turvy is also the Victorian period. Um, Turner is not, well, it's partly the Victorian period, the middle of the 19th century, and Peter Lou is also the 19th century. So can you speak about this experience, which is very different from the one, pro maybe not so different, I don't know, you, you have the answer, 
from uh, the other films, which are contemporary, and you have a special way of working. We shall talk about it later, about uh, writing the script f with the actors for three months or four months. Is, does it make it different when you are inspired by real events, real characters that exist existed in, in, in life? It, fundamentally, no, it's, it isn't different. Obviously, the difference, uh, uh, such as they are, the differences are obvious ones. If you, you know, with Topsy Turvey and Mr. Turner and Peter Liu, what we have done is to dramatise actual events and put flesh on, bring to life actual people who existed. Though in all of those films, um, there are two things to be said about it. One is that amongst the historical actual characters, there are also characters we've invented to make that world three-dimensional. The other thing is that, and I think this is important, that um, you can read all the books in the world about historical events, but that doesn't make them happen in front of the camera. What has to happen in front of the camera is flesh and blood. It's something that really exists in an organic, three-dimensional way. And therefore, um, the, the way that, I, that you referred to, the, the means and methods by which um, I have always brought into existence the content and the substance of the contemporary films, stories which we've actually made up from scratch, um, still applies. I mean, I've never made a film involving actors where the, and this is all the contemporary films as well, where the actors, for example, didn't need to get out and research all kinds of things, be that you know, where they went to school or what books they read or what their jobs are or whatever, you name it. Now, uh, obviously, involving intelligent actors in a historical piece, again, involves a great deal of research and everybody gets involved in that research. But the, the, at the core and the center of the operation, there still remains the job of bringing to life, making characters who are solid and three-dimensional and organically uh, that actually exist in, in front of the camera. And uh, so in the end, um, it, it comes down to the same kind of procedures. Beyond that, and I think even more important than that from, from my point of view, is the philosophy involved in it. When I first decided to do a period film, which was topsy-turvy, though, as you referred to, a very obscure play that I did previously, but no evidence of that is, exists anywhere, so there's not much we can say about it. People can't go away and, and look at it, or they can look at topsy-turvy. Um, when I decided to do that, to do topsy-turvy, which is set in uh, the 1880s, my philosophy was that let us look at this world, this apparently uh, chocolate box world of the um, uh, opera comique of Gilbert and Sullivan in the London theatre. But let's look at them in exactly the same way as we've looked at the characters in Secrets and Lies or Naked 
or any of the other fields, which is to say, these are, let's look at them as real people with real issues, living real lives, and, and going through everything that real people go through. And in fact, what one of the things that fascinates me um, and that you see going on right through all of my films is people doing what they do, people working, what people, you know, the things that people have to do to get through life. And that's what actually topsy-turvy is about. I mean, the fact is that what they are taking very seriously in that film is creating these souffle, these um, uh, um, comic operas. But still, it's a job. And, you know, so it, it, and there, there are, uh, if you remember, towards the end of the film, there are some very serious looks at the people and their relationships and their preoccupations. So um, in the end, it's about, it, it was and it remains with the period films, about bringing to the job of the so-called cost, costume drama of the period film the criteria that I've always employed in looking at contemporary life. Because in the end, uh, it's still life, you know, it's life being lived. But what about the choice of the several of these films, the 19th century and the Victorian period? Well, it, uh, that's interesting. I don't know. I, I actually uh, don't know that that um, the fact that the three films are set at different uh, um, stages. Well, Peterloo is not Victorian, but it's well, the it's early 19th, 19th. Yes, it's 19th century. All those films, all three of the films, are set in the 19th century. Exactly. But I don't think. I, I think. Um, what they're about is more important than the fact that they are... I mean, it, it, it may be that I have uh, interesting subconscious preoccupation with the 19th century, um, but that isn't, that isn't um, the bottom line, is that not, that's not what it's about, really. Each of the films has uh, um, subject matter reasons for dealing with them. Now, of course, like most directors, you have a special relationship we shall speak about it later, about your cinematographers, about your set designer, about your musician, your editor. But I think among all the directors, important directors, you are the one who is the most linked to the actors. Uh, you have a special relationship with the actors just because of this period of writing the script with them, elaborating the characters and so on. But you yourself, you were an actor at RADA, Royal Academy of Dramatic Art, and uh, it was not such a great experience. So, what, well, in, in a way, uh, the, that, does the, the, your, your fascination with actors, does it relate to the fact that you wanted to be an actor and somehow you, the experience was not so fruitful? No, it's a very romantic um, um, interpretation of my story, but it's not accurate at all. Um, <laughs> I did not want to be an actor. But I, when I left school, I went, I was fortunate enough to get a scholarship as an actor at the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art in London. Uh, but I wanted to make films and write plays and direct. Uh, I had already started to do that sort of thing in my teens. And so I was fascinated with the possibility, uh, with acting and actors. But I absolutely didn't want to be one myself. I mean, the idea that I... I'm a failed actor, and I'm therefore that motivates what I do. It, romantic though it is, and I think it's very quaint, um, <laughs> it, it is not accurate. No, I really did want to, and in fact, I was I was directing uh, stuff. I, the first thing I ever directed in the academy in London was Harold Pinter's 
play the caretaker. Um, and I very quickly, um, I mean, I did act a little bit, but mostly I acted in fil some films in order to get, just to see what it was, what the filmmaker to be there and experience it. Um, but I very quickly, I also went to art school and the London Film School, so I very quickly got on with the business of being a, of doing what I do. So, but having said that, uh, the fact that I trained as an actor and the fact that the training at the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art at that time in London was a very old-fashioned and very uh, off, uh, conservative and very superficial, external kind of approach to acting, where there was never any discussion or investigation or consideration as to the, what the play was about or the background of the characters. You never thought about, you know, you only thought about what is happening in the play at this moment. You never thought about where does this person come from, what's, what sort of life has he or she had, what's their mutual background of the characters and so forth. And we never, and, we never in any way uh, deployed any sort of improvisation in the development of the work. It was very much about just old-fashioned theatre. You learn the lines and you learn the moves and you do it. And that's it. And on the whole, the acting that we did was pretty bad because it was, you know, people are that sort of acting. People are forced into either cliché-received ideas of sort of uh, stereotype characters, or they're just play actors are playing themselves, and it's not really a depiction of somebody out there in the real world. So all of this going on in these early formative years for me, as a student in this discipline, I simply reacted to it immediately, and it got me thinking about stuff that about how you know what you could really be doing. And of course, there were other things going on. I mean, the Nouvelle Vague was happening at that time. The um, uh, work of Peter Brook, who was a great uh, experimental director in the theatre. Um, when I first went to London to be a student, one of the, f the very first uh, unpredictable m movies that I saw in the cinema was John Cassavetti's first film, Shadows, which, of course, uh, um, as characterised uh, Cassavetti's later work, uh, ongoing work, um, we knew, we gathered, involved actors improvising. Uh, there's a great difference between what John Cassavetti's did over the years and what I do in the sense that what you see in a film by John Cassavetti's is actors playing themselves pretty much improvising in front of the camera. And in my films, you both don't see actors playing themselves. They are really doing characters as it were, out from out there in the street, the real world, and what happens in front of the camera is very, very thoroughly rehearsed and scripted, but we'll talk about that perhaps later on. Um, but, but certainly my formative experience uh, of actors and my um, involvement with actors and my understanding of actors traces itself back to my early training, bad as it was. Uh, in London. But in the 60s, before you made your, your first film, we shall see very soon an excerpt of uh, Bleak Moments, uh, you mostly did work for the theatre when you were uh, 20, 20, uh, tw very young uh, for 
the whole 60s. Yeah. Uh, you, I think you, you, you wrote about 24 plays, if I'm... Mm, ten, actually. Ten? Yeah. Um, oh, I, I love the idea that it was 24, but I wouldn't... <laughs> I, it, no, it was, it was only ten. Ten plays, I think ten's not that's bad, a lot. Actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a lot. But, uh, you know, they were all, uh, they were all so-called, slightly, slightly wrongly called improvised plays, because, again, what we did is what we still do, which is to go into, into a... St- sustained session of period of preparation and explore and improvise and gradually build, distill it down and build it and arrive at something very precise. So I did that here and there. And I, I yeah, indeed, throughout the entire time, was looking to make a movie. And it was very difficult. And it was actually impossible until we got to make bleak moments at the beginning of the 70s. So you wrote plays by default in a way. I mean, you know, the, the Kazan and the people of the group theatre in New yeah. York in uh, in the 30s, it was very much the same. They yeah. they went into play because the idea of directing a film in Hollywood seemed to them there was not no other place where you could make films except yeah. Hollywood. Yeah. It was so unthinkable that they they loved theatre, but it was a substitute for film. It, you know, I, it's interesting to say it by default. I mean, in a way, it was uh, absolutely the right thing to, to be doing. Because, you know, um, as soon as I started making f- feature films, which began with bleak moments, uh, it became and remains standard procedure for us to go into a long period of preparation uh, um, before shooting anything. Uh, incidentally, just a detail, um, th- th- it's not quite accurate to say that I spend m- months with the actors writing the script. That's not really what happens. What I really do is spend a lot of time with the actors developing the premise of the film. And we really don't get to define it precisely in script terms till we're actually shooting it, scene by scene, location by location, going and building up and rehearsing in the location and pinning it down and shooting it. Um, But that became standard procedure. Now, there is no question that if I hadn't spent those years... Um, learning the skills of doing that in a theatre context where it's standard procedure to have a long rehearsal period, whereas it is not standard procedure on the whole for films to have any rehearsal at all. Um, if I hadn't really been able to develop those, uh, that approach and those skills and so on by doing those plays, I think I wouldn't have been able to mm, apply it to filmmaking when I had the opportunity to do so eventually. So now we, we are going to, to look at uh, one scene of, uh, of Bleak Moments, uh, which is uh, also quite exceptional as a film because I think you made two films out of a play. Bleak Moments existed before as a play and you made it into a film. And there was another film that uh, I think you... Called Nuts in May. Nuts in May. But, but I have to say... Um, Nuts in May was also a play and then became a, play, a film. But you know what? It, it, it really... Uh, uh, um, there are some elements in Bleak Moments which survived from the play, but the film really was a complete reinvestigation. Of, I mean, we, in a way, we'd created the characters, but we took them and... Exp- and opened them out and explored them, re-explored them and re-examined them. As I say, there are one or two bits of the film that survive, uh, the play that survive in the film, but it, it's not quite the same thing as an adaptation of a play, really. 
Good coffee. Hilda. Hilda, 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 Hilda. Do you like some sherry? No, I'm fine with coffee, thank you. So you'll have to join me. Here we are. Enjoy yourself. I'm glad somebody eventually laughed, because it's all supposed to be funny, actually. <laughs> yes, in spite of the title. Yes. So is, is it the same cast as in the, in the play? Oh, yeah. The same. Yeah. Yes, so it's, it's mostly it's a relationship between a sister, this woman you saw in the, in the excerpt, and a retarded uh, yes. sister that she yes. takes care of. Yes, it's, that's a, it's a very un-PC way of describing it <laughs> in, uh, in 2019. <laughs> but uh, you, you have often, uh, you, not often, but you have sometimes spoken negatively about Antonioni. Uh, they, there was something missing in Antonioni, and this film is about also non-communication yes. between people. This is uh, sort of. But this is what, did, what did you find missing in Antonioni that you wanted to to have in your own film? Well, what you've just seen is Antonioni with jokes, <laughs> <laughs> or to put it slightly more acerbically. Antonioni with a sense of humour. <laughs> That's all I have to say on the subject. I, think, I don't think it needs any further elaboration. <laughs> you, know the, you know the word of Dino Risi about Antonioni? He said, uh, uh, because he could not write dialogue, he made films about non-communication. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. It's not your case. No. You, you write dialogues. But, uh, for but instance... That, you know, I mean, the thing about Antonioni, when... I, when in the golden age of Antonioni, we, we was boys... was ten years before the film. We boys would go with incredible enthusiasm to see these very boring films, but that's only because we all wanted to fuck Monica Vitti. <laughs> <laughs> that's all there was to it. And probably we still do, I don't know. <laughs> But you, about the, you know, this in this excerpt, the, for instance, the the idea of the tongue, uh, the man with uh, moving his tongue coming out of the mouth and so on. How was it found? I mean, how well, you know, it's very, you know, you don't have to be Sigmund Freud. You know, uh, he knows that he's really why he's there is he he knows that, and it actually happens. You know, he he knows he's going to have to confront the fact that he really wants to get it together with this woman and um, you know sort of something subconscious makes him start exercising his kissing equipment <laughs> when she goes out of the room you can't do that while she's there <laughs> next question 
you were uh, you were set, uh, you you staged uh, the caretaker and and you staged uh, Endgame by Beckett, which are two influences and yes. definitely in this scene we could see something that is common with with Pinter. Yes. This um, and Beckett too. I and Beckett at a, some level. Well, we speak of Beckett later on naked. I think there's naked something closer to Beckett, but. Uh, how did Pinter was uh, almost your contemporary, a little older, but he was in he the six. He was about um, ten years older than me. Hmm. And is there same? Uh, we could talk about uh, you know this mixture of comedy and and drama, which is in all your films, can be well. Jews are not the only ones, but it's certainly a tradition uh, of the Jewish heritage. This. Uh, this kind of, of mixture of uh, humor inside the drama. Yes, I think that's true. I, I, I don't know what, what else to say about that, but I think you're right. Because your origin, I mean, you are from a Jewish family from uh, uh, Russia, your grandfather and uh, the other the maternal grandfather was from Lithuania, I think. So was it important in your, uh, in your upbringing? Well, that was the upbringing. Yes, you um, were you were in in a you were in a suburb of Manchester, more or less. Yes. Oh no, it was a very um, very much a, a, a Jewish world from which I escaped very um, enthusiastically and very early. But can you can you speak a little about your your family background? Your fa father was a butcher. My father was a doctor. Actually, doctor. Maybe he sorry. was a butcher as well. <laughs> <laughs> But to, to give Michelle's due, my grandfather, my maternal grandfather, was a butcher. Um, I skipped one generation. Yeah, you did. You got you're confused. Um, no, my, my uh, I, I, were well, they religious? Not really. No, mm. um, only in a very ordinary way. But what I was going to say about it is that um, since you are pressing me to talk about this, um, <laughs> the the. Um, I was born in 1943, and like everybody else, of many people of um, our generation specifically, um, of course, we grew up as children in the 1940s and teenagers in the 1950s. And of course, what we only later really put together and realized is that our parents' generation had been to Helen back during World War II. Um, so uh, I think one of the things that motivates my films, and Bleak Moments is no exception, is having been a, a repressed teenager in the 1950s. Um, Growing up in a world which was all about respectability and the done thing, and you know, doing behaving as you should behave, and all of that stuff. So, of course, you know, so many of us broke out of that and we let our hair down literally in the 60s, and we, the rest is history. Well, growing up in that particular world, which was not only uh, provincial, bourgeois, suburban, but also uh, a Jewish world. Um, it was very much 
Um, it, my parents were, the, uh, uh, as you've referred to, my parents were first generation people born in England. And they were very preoccupied with you know, being respectable and being English. They had foreign parents. They had parents who, who spoke, uh, whose um, native languages wasn't English weren't English, although all my grandparents embraced being English very enthusiastically, um, and all had arrived at the beginning, more or less, of the, of the century. Um, so it, it was a kind of, uh, the, the, I think this answers your question, it, it was a kind of very, uh, um, it was a world preoccupied with respectability, and um, uh, order and behaving well and on top of that my paternal grandfather my father's father whom you've referred to was born in uh, Belarus um, was a commercial artist he actually colored in he actually was a portrait artist but he had a firm that uh, what you remember the colored photographs you could have took a photograph and they would be colored in in a wishy-washy way and then put in a frame that was the family business and it was successful uh, later in particularly during world war ii when people wanted to have pictures of their uh, sons who had gone off to fight and so on but in the depression in the 20s when my father was a, growing up was a, uh, a child my grandfather couldn't feed the family because nobody wanted uh, photographs. People just needed loaves of bread to feed, to feed the kids. And so my father was paranoid about the idea of me, me being any sort of artist. Any sort of artist would penury, I would starve. And so since from an early age I was drawing and putting on shirts, I mean, he just was, by instinct, absolutely against it. I mean, he couldn't help it, basically. And it's not that he, you know, they went to see plays and, you know, uh, and listen to music and stuff. But the idea of me doing it was simply um, anathema. Um, in the fullness of time, he got over it and um, accepted that actually it was quite a viable proposition. But um, uh, it, so, in a way, that so if you look at my films, the whole thing about respectability, about masks, about being who you really are, and not you know, and, and actually um, not succumbing to behaving as the way other people want you to behave, and all of that—that that is a running theme that I don't particularly consciously necessarily um, put in. It does, however, surface in all sorts of different ways throughout the films. But uh, going back to your Jewish origins, you, you belong to a, to a group of young people, Zionists, and you also went to Israel. And, and you said, I think, once that probably your love of collaboration with people while you were preparing the films is also linked to this early part of your life yes. where you were collaborating in this group of kibbutzin or... Yeah, yeah, no, it's true. Uh, but of course there was, uh, you know, uh, w we know that, that the, the um, existence of youth movements, which really after the First World War, um, for a number of decades, particularly between the wars, 
including the Nazi youth movement. I mean, it was, the, it was a big thing. And this particular socialist Zionist youth movement that I, that, um, I w was very much part of for the whole of my childhood and teens until I actually went to London to get on with my professional life. Uh, was very much part of my... And, of course, you know, if you've grown up in a world, world where you are um, indoctrinated with the, the idea of this... of, of a, the reasons for the Jewish state, the reason for the state of Israel, the reasons for um, the inevitability of the state of Israel, but the, the healthiness of this idea of this new, young, vibrant country, this that could be a socialist society, the idea of the kibbutz and all that, that you know, that, that all those of us who grew up indoctrinated and indeed enthused about these things in the early days are of course more disgusted and horrified and sickened by what has actually happened and what Israel now is which is a fascist apartheid state, um, it, it is absolutely uh, appalling. Of course, what we also know is that we were fed lies. We were fed lies about the Palestinians. We were, led, fed, we were fed with the idea that, um, as it was put, or the language in which it was put at that time, is that the Arabs, these sort of Arabs, neglected the land in Palestine and that the Zionists really brought life to it. It's absolute, it is absolute nonsense. Um, so, you know, people like me with that sort of background and have actually had to deal with and struggle with the our profoundly um, disgusted feelings about these things increasingly over the decades. I don't want to dwell on this anymore, but you're asking me about that. And it is true what you say, and I have said it, that, the, that my actual early experience in this very healthy organisation, albeit it, that it was, a, uh, it was a kind of mostly secular but Jewish organisation, was actually very, very much part of a formative aspect of my attitude to working with people and sharing and collaborating and, and so on, and so that's true. Well, to, to, to conclude, and not going back to it uh, about your Jewish background, uh, I think there is something also in your film which goes back to the Jewish tradition of the Talmudic tradition of asking questions, not giving answers. I mean, you have a very good contemporary filmmaker in England, which is Ken Loach, and Ken Loach gives you answers. He knows everything. He knows the answers to all the problems. And in your film, on the contrary, at, at the end of your film, there's always a questioning. Would yes. you think it, has, it is related to...? I think it's a very uh, um, perceptive and viable notion. Uh, I, it may well be. I, I haven't really... It's not something that I'm... That I have uh, thought about consciously. It's a very interesting idea. Uh, it's certainly true that I am more concerned, I'm only concerned, to, with all of my films, including Peterloo, which you may see, uh, which is my most obviously and overtly political film, i.e. my only film that's actually about 
pol politics and political activity as such. Um, I do um, always, I, by instinct and intention, bring my films to a point where you, I say to you, the audience, now, I'm not telling you what to think. You, it's, this is, I hand this to you to go away, reflect, ponder, argue about, uh, etc. And in that sense, you may well be right. This is a kind of um, a Talmudic approach. Another, another aspect also of your, maybe of your upbringing, of your education, is your sense of caricature. I mean, uh, of course, it's a great tradition in England, not a Jewish tradition uh, of Hogarth and uh, Jill Ray and, uh, and even in, in literature, Dickens. You know, the sense of caricature which you find in your film, which you find even in Peterloo. I was, I was su not surprised, but interested in Peterloo, how you, you characterize all these people, the faces of these people. They all have a, their own characteristic. And you went into a school of design, and I suppose also your early training as drawing and so on helped you to, to cap capsule, in a capsule, to have a type. Yes, I mean, in the end, it's about, I mean, I, I don't think in terms of, uh, so far as my work goes, uh, in terms of caricature. I mean, I, I, my, the job is to put on the screen people the way, you know, when I was a kid, I used to sit, I went to the movies all the time, as often as they would let you, and I used to sit in the cinema, and I used to think, wouldn't it be great if you could have a film where the characters in the film were like real people, not like people in films? And, you know, that's what it's about for me, really. And so the idea of... I mean, I look round at this collection of caricatures. <laughs> I mean, because you're all individual real people. We all are. I mean, with all due respects. You're something of a caricature yourself, you know. And look at that. Um, so, I mean, you know, it, it is about making characters in a three-dimensional, idiosyncratic way as people are. Um, and I think that's what you're referring to. I don't personally see it as caricature. No, no, I'm not saying that your films are caricature, but there is, at some moments in your film, a sense of a graphic choice of a face yeah. of the... The eyes, the nose, and so on. Yeah. You, you capture this. It's because of making the characters real and three-dimensional and uh, unique and idiosyncratic in the way that we all are. Now, we are going to see now uh, an excerpt of, of the film that brought you uh, an international uh, reputation. It's the showing in Cannes of Naked. Uh, by the way, it's, it's interesting your your uh, interest in actors. I think you are the only filmmaker I know who, when they get a prize, the prize is doubled by a prize to the actor. It's unique, I think. Uh, Naked got uh, best uh, direction, I think, and best actor, David Thewlis. In Secrets and Lies, it was a golden palm, and best actress, Brenda Blethyn. Mm. Uh, in, in Venice, it was the golden lion, and the best actress for Vera Drake was the actress in Vera the Drake. Yes. So it's very striking. I don't think there is anything comparable to any list of prizes. And it shows how much your talent is linked with what you get from comedians. And of course now, Naked, I, I knew your films before and I love I loved them, you know, but there was something so 
drastic in the pessimism and, and the view of life that Naked had. There was something about the photography, about the, the subject, that it somehow was different, though it was your, totally your films, different from the films that preceded it. Do you want to talk about it after you've shown your clip? Yes, well, we can say that uh, after we can comment the, the, yeah. the excerpt. Yeah. Let's but, show the excerpt. And then, all right. Then we'll discuss that. All right. Step this way. I want to reveal to you the mysteries of my trade. What do you think that is? A uh, Dadaist nun. Wrong. This little lady is the representative of my employer. How do you do, Log? Watch. That is Zen. My existence at this moment on this spot is now trapped and recorded. 23 moments, 23 sights every two hours. That's my job. Well, could they not train a tall chimpanzee to do that? Or a small chimpanzee with a bigger gizmo? Expect they could, yes. What's your name, son? Brian. Hello, Brian. Johnny. Well, Brian, congratulations. You've succeeded in convincing me that you do have the most tedious fucking job in England. Come on. But all you can see is the tip of the iceberg, the present, the tedious here and now. What you're incapable of seeing is the rest of time, the rest of the iceberg, the past and the future. My future, which is a very interesting place to be. And the thing about this job is that it gives me time and space to contemplate the future at my leisure, whilst the city sleeps, free from the cacophonous curiosity of the hoi polloi. So you see, it's not a boring job. And I'm not boring either. Am I allowed to smoke on the stairs? No, there's alarm all over the building. So you think you can make the present palatable by projecting into the future? You're living in the past, pal. It's the future that fucks you up, Brian. It's the, the maggot in the apple. You see, you're all pissed off with a present, right? And there's nothing wrong with the present. The present's fine. The present's perfect. The present's peachy fucking creamy. The only thing wrong with the present is the bastard doesn't exist. Because the present is the future, and the future is the past, and it's all the same fucking bag of bones anyway. It's a constant process of coming into being and passing away, coming into being and passing away. The future is now. But the present does exist. We're in it now. You were just then when you said it, but you're not in it now. You're not in it now. You're not in it now. You've never been kicked up the ass by the future. You with me? That's what I mean. See, I'm in the present, but I'm not in the present. I'm in the future. Exactly. I've just had an idea for a film about two old men that keep clambering. <laughs> now, this is what I was referring as Beckettian, uh, you know, like uh, Endgame that you directed on the stage or Waiting for Godot uh, with these two tramps who are philosophizing, you know, making uh, uh, discussions like two clowns talking about philosophical issues. Um, so in, in that, Naked was really a, a departure, though it was very much in your line, but it was very striking as, as a very somber piece of work. 
with this man who is a victimizer and a victim himself. I mean, David Thewlis in the film. Johnny. Um, yeah, of course, the thing about Johnny is that people have said he's a cynic. He's not a cynic. He's the opposite of a cynic. He's an idealist, but he's a frustrated idealist. He's disappointed in the world. He's disappointed in the material world, the superficiality of things. I think he's a victim of bad education system. He's the kind of kid in school that um, the teachers would have sent out of the room and got fed up with him, rather than see that he was a really bright kid who needed to be nurtured and brought out. Um, and I think um, that's a key to our understanding what the film's about. Of course, he has a great sense of humour, uh, but it, again, it's, it's filtered through his um, frustration with the world, his, and there's a kind of bitterness. But at the same time, he has a passion. Um, yeah, it, it was a departure, and of course, uh, and I felt, you know, I'd made, um, referring back to what we were talking about just a while back about my own um, growing up world, um, you know, I'd made films which were set in suburban, you know, in the suburban world, and I was yet to do more such films. But I just, um, you know, it felt I wanted to make a film that was about a cri de coeur, really, about, about you know, um, disorder and um, chaos. And, um, and also, you know, here was the thing. The previous film uh, that we made before, it was Life is Sweet, which uh, you showed a clip of earlier on. Um, and Life is Sweet... Um, we had an office and still have an office in Soho in central London. And um, before we went off to make Life is Sweet, uh, it was perfectly, Soho was as it had been for a long time. I went away and made the film. I didn't really go into London much for um, a whole number of months. And when I came back, all of a sudden, there were homeless people sleeping on the streets. It was a sudden uh, epidemic of people out there. And I had the idea of making a film about homeless people, which is now, of course, a major, major issue uh, now. Um, and although in the end, the film that we made, this film, is not actually about a homeless person at all. In fact, you see him at the beginning of the film uh, collecting his bag from his house uh, and... Um, stealing a car and driving to London. It, that was just the jumping off point. And I realised that it wasn't actually about... The issue wasn't going to be about homelessness or anything. It was to do with um, people with a feeling of disconnection. And, um, uh, and really, that lies at the core of what the film is. It's about you know, connecting and not connecting and feeling um, uh, adrift and so forth. But talking again about your way of writing the, the scripts, uh, working with the actors for three, four months, how do you cast? Because the characters are not yet developed. They, they don't exist. Uh, they don't exist. No. So how do you choose an actor to play in your film when you don't know 
exactly what the kind of role he would play. For well, instance, David Thewlis here. Sometimes I don't know at all. I mean, here's the thing. I mean, David Thewlis was uh, in a couple of earlier short, and then he was in Life is Sweet. In Life is Sweet, he was around, and we created this character. It was sometime uh, sort of lover of one of the daughters in the film. Um, but he only appeared twice. Uh, he expected to be in the film rather more, but it, it, the way it worked out, it was a, quite a small part. And I talked to him when I was going to prepare the next film, and I said, you know, um, you want to be in this? He said, well, I, I, I would like to, but how do I know I'm going to wind up with two small scenes again? So I said, I guarantee you will have a major slice of the pie. I, I promise you. And that alone set my thoughts going. You know, it's very hard to, to, to um, pin it down. In the end, to answer the very simple question you're asking about how I choose actors when I don't know what the character is going to be, because I work with character actors, which is to say people that are versatile and don't just play themselves, but are good at playing and like to play a variety of real people out there in the street that I keep referring to, um, I, I can think, well, this actor... And I meet sometimes I meet a new actor, a new character, and I think, well, actually, if, if I collaborate with this actor, there are all kinds of possibilities. And the job is to explore and, and make a character. Uh, and so sometimes it's, it's much more a question of the possibilities of working with that actor and all the different things that this could yield up than having a fixed idea of the character before I actually cast. Sometimes there are occasions when some particular quality or... You know, I mean, you know that if you have two young people that could be brother and sister... Or that or that's that, that's a possibility, but still, that's. So, I mean, um, in this film, in Naked, you have this uh, night security guard played by this wonderful actor called Peter White, who you see in a number of my films. He's a really brilliant actor, and you also, uh, when he's in this office block with this guy, they look through the window and they see a woman, uh, a woman of mature years in a flat across the road, and they watch her, and she's sort of dancing by herself, and finally, Johnny, the central character, the David Thewlis character, goes out, and he goes over, and he knocks on her, and he goes in, and he has a little, here's a scene with her. Um, now, when I put the cast together for Naked, I, did, I had no doubt whatever that in casting Peter White, who plays the security guard, and this actress called Deborah McLaren, who plays the woman, I had no doubt whatever that they would be a couple of some kind. But as the thing developed, and I started to have, uh, to, I started to have ideas and see the possibilities, uh, th I simply utilised them in a different way, uh, you know, s separate characters. Um, in a way, uh, all I can say about this is to um, ask you to reflect that all art is a synthesis of improvisation and order. Painters, poets, novelists, sculptors, musicians, composers, etc. You know, you, you embark on a journey of 
making a piece of work and often don't know what it is or where it's going to go and you interact with the material and the material suggests things and then you bring ideas to the material and gradually you sort of work out what it is and, and that's what I do. So in a way, um, assembling a gang of actors with a lot, with an infinite number of really interesting possibilities is a very exciting and rich thing. And then it's down to working individually with each actor and creating a character and then putting them together and exploring relationships and so, through, so forth in all kinds of ways uh, and arriving at the material. Now, the stage after all this work with the actors for a few months is finally on the set. Now, when you are on the set, the script is totally written or is there still a possibility? Because I think you differ totally from Cassavetes, as you said. Cassavetes, the, the improvisation is done. But in, in your films, the script is the script. Yeah. After months of elaboration, once you start shooting, it is the script. It is. But I do mean, you allow for modifications? Of course. Uh, any number of film directors will allow with the most conventional scripts, still allow moments to happen of an improvised nature. And, you know, uh, like lots of directors, I mean, when, it, when the rehearsed scene, when you're shooting it, when it's time for me to say cut, I may not necessarily say cut and just allow things to happen a bit. But it's really marginal. What I'm concerned with is precise and getting to the essence of things in a properly, thoroughly developed and worked out way, and that's on the whole what happens. And uh, you know, um, uh, uh, it's not just about disciplines or anything. It's about the quality of the writing. It's the quality of language. I mean, I am a writer, and I want the dialogue. Uh, it always comes out of the character work, comes out of the improvisation, so that it always has its own kind of authenticity. But actually, I want it to be well written. I don't want to have clumsy repetitions and I don't want, you know, half-baked syntax or something. It needs to be really, it has to have its own kind of poetry. And language is as important as anything else. Um, and this film is a, certainly an illustration of that. I mean, I, I'm disappointed slightly because the next bit in this extract that you've just seen is where they, they go into a space and Johnny is in silhouette and he delivers this very long, a complicated diatribe about all kinds of stuff. Um, and I thought you were going to see that because, in a way, that's a classic case where we improvised and improvised, and then we gradually worked at it and we worked at it and we pinned it down. I don't know whether you're going to show an extract from Secrets and Lies. Next one. What is the extract? It's the, 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 the lunch, the, the, all the... Oh, them sitting around. Six well, lunch. I'd say a few things about that because in relation to what I'm talking about... Um, they are, uh, it's a single static shot uh, and the camera doesn't move at all. Partly because I knew that in the next part of the action, when the action goes inside um, and the truth comes out, uh, the stuff that, that uh, it's all about, the film, uh, that there will be lots of cutting and things. So I, I set it up so that you really had this, so you're looking at them sitting around at this barbecue. There's a lot going on, there's a lot of dialogue a lot of food being served up, drinks and stuff. Um, there's a lot of moving around. And, of course, it absolutely, like anything in any film, must appear to be 
spontaneous and real, and therefore you would assume that it is, like real life, improvised. But in fact, we really, really rehearsed it and rehearsed it and rehearsed it. And what you are looking at when you will see it in a minute, you are looking at something that is very, very precisely worked out, including who moves where and what they say. And, you know, and of course, apart from anything else, you know, the director's job is also to look through the camera so that, you know, what we're looking at is a continual, continual, continuous series of uh, compositions. So at no time is anyone blocking or masking anybody else. You know, it's always uh, properly choreographed. And that has to be one of the advantages of working the way that I do, where we are evolving the action and the dialogue simultaneously, is that one can serve the other. You can change one to adapt to the other, so that it's all integrated. The only difficulty I would share with you, with the scene that you're about to see, is that there was no problem with rehearsing very precisely what the actors <coughs> did. But the problem was that steaks and sausages and things have got a life of their own. And they're not interested in rehearsing or doing what's been decided. They leap about, and they're a damn nuisance, actually. But apart from that, it was a very well-organised shot, and I hope you enjoy it. Have you worked with my mum, yeah? Yeah. Not on the machine? No. You coming round tomorrow night, Paul? Well, it's... Hey? We're going out. Well, you'll come round beforehand, won't you? Have a drink. It's her 21st. It's no big deal. Well, I ain't give you your present yet. Chicken drumsticks. Do you want some salad, sweetheart? Yes, please. I'll get you some. Are you doing Thanks. something special tomorrow night, you two? No, down a pub as usual. Oh? Do you use fingers? Use what you like. Use your feet if you want. <laughs> You've had knife and fork there, Jean. It's a bit late now. What do you do at the factory, then? This looks really lovely, Maurice. Thank you. I hope it doesn't kill you. <laughs> There's salad service there, Cynthia. You ain't no boss, are you? No. Yeah, sweetheart. Thank you. Do you want some salad, Paul? No, I'm all right, thanks. It's good for you, mate. You go. You don't want none. <laughs> What about Jane? Does she want salad? Yes, not very much. What do you do then, Roxanne? I work for the council. What, down the doll? No, I'm a road sweeper. Wow. Are you? Yes. Who's for a potato? She's got my plate. Oh. Yeah, sweetheart. One for you, Hotel? Yes, please. Yeah, I'll have some of that and all. Thank you. Please. Yeah, you do get girl road sweepers, don't ya? Right, burgers and bangers. Nice one. Yeah, that's your one, Roxanne. That's the one with your name on it, the burnt one, all right? Yeah. <laughs> Potato for you, Paul. Please. Nice big one. Yeah, darling. <laughs> one for you, Pat. Right up. Shall I do you, Monica? I, I can see to myself, thanks, Cynthia. Why don't you sit down? What about Morris? Who's looking after the worker? Don't worry about me. I've been picking. I'll eat oh, sorry. Your potatoes on your plate, dear Cynthia. Can't have some salad. Can I have a toast back, please? Oh, sorry. Got butter? Yes, just a minute. I have some mustard while you're there, Monica. Uh -huh. Oh, you like the... American, don't you, Roxanne? Yeah, Pa. Alright, let's just get some salad. Do you want some butter, Paul? Right, darling. Yeah, just Morris. waiting for the butter. There you go, Cynthia. Oh, Maurice! Well, I'll shut you up. Oh, you having Thanks. a steak, are you, Cynthia? Yes, thank you, Monica. Oh, that'll put hairs in your chest. Uh, <laughs> like some mustard, or would you prefer the French? This looks lovely, Maurice. Right. There you go, mate. Oh, thanks, darling. Love a cow for you. Look at that. Look at the oh, size that. That's ridiculous. There's enough Jeez. there for all of us. Put some colour in your cheeks, Paul. Right. You sure no one else wants a steak? Well, aren't you having one? No, he's not, Cynthia. Not allowed. Would you like some mustard, Paul? Oh, it's lovely. 
can't get rid of it, can you? Oh, it's a real communal thing, eating. Yes. This is a lovely house. Well, we like it. I'll show you around later, if yeah, you want. Yeah, thanks. That would be nice. Yeah, it's brilliant. Do you live in a flat, then, Hortense? Yeah. Yeah, it's her own. She's got a mortgage and everything. Whereabouts are you? Kilburn. It's a bit of a schlep, isn't it? The old Kemp Road and back every day. Oh. Just she drives! I drive to the station. You've got a bed sit, ain't you, Paul? Yes, yeah, right. Oh, that's a shame. Wish I'd have placed me own. Do you still live at home, then? No chance. So, do you two work on the same machine? No. I'm the only one on slits. Do you choose your own working hours, then, Roxanne? Not bloody likely. Just biding her time to go to college, aren't you? I ain't going to college. <laughs> oh, Tense went to college. Mm. What did you study? Optometry. What's that, then? It's to do with the eye, isn't it? That's right. Testing. Mm. And you're giving that all up now, have you? Not exactly. <laughs> what are you doing working in a cardboard box factory, then? I'm doing research. <sighs> oh. That's interesting. What sort of research? Medical. What are you looking at her head? <laughs> Take the notice. There's nothing wrong with her head. Did you go to university? Yeah. Did you do a degree? Yes, I did. She just looks at our eyes, don't you? Yes, I do. <laughs> what for? Well, you can tell a lot about people from looking at their eyes. That's true. Can you? Windows to your soul. That's a nice way of putting it, Jane. It's true, though, ain't it? Right. Who wants to top up? Hortense? No, thanks. I'm driving. Yes, please, sweetheart. Yeah, Morris. Oi, greedy guts. <laughs> you want to take a leaf out of her book, Paul? Lost his licence. All right, ma'am. Why did you have an accident, Paul? Just stay one too many, that's all. There you okay. go. The demon drinky. Is that who you've been going out with, then? Yes. She thought I'd been seeing a blow. <laughs> <laughs> Could have been, I suppose. I can still turn a few heads. Turn stomachs. <laughs> oh, oh. did she? <laughs> I could think it's cut oh. off now. It's just playing. Did you pop one all tense? Oh, well, we might as well pop the lot, then. <laughs> no! Because <laughs> the thing about that um, action, that scene, is... Um, because it's odd seeing it out of context, of course, clips always are, but it, the thing is that the, you, the audience, and those of you who know this film will know what I mean. I mean, you, you absolutely are sitting there wondering when the truth, this desperate truth, is going to, to come out, because nobody knows why this young woman optometrist is there. That they don't know. It's all a complete... So it's a cliffhanger, really. It's a, the tension is, you know, what is going to happen? And... Um, which is sort of why I thought it would be good to have this apparently just long domestic thing going on, you know, with, you know, you know, so the tension somehow builds up internally without 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 one having to kind of stack it up artificially in some way. Because the actors know their character, but they don't know the others. They don't know the variety of Blenda Blenda Blitzen did not know that she had a black. No, that's that true. Uh, that's true. She, that, she but, don't but know about the other uh, and, until the scene is really filmed. No, I mean w this involves an elaborate um, thing. I mean, with these narrat 
these original films as opposed to the historical ones, where obviously people know they're going to be in a film about these historical events. But with something like this film, um, what I do is I invite the actor, each actor, to take part, and I say, I don't know what it's going to be. I can't tell you what it's going to be. It's going to be an, an adventure of discovery. Um, and I can't tell you what the character, who the character, or what the character <coughs> will be, because you and I are going to collaborate to create a character. But above all, I have to say, I cannot tell you anything about the character, and you will never know anything about the character, except what he or she knows. So the actors only ever go through the whole experience of developing the story, through the improvisations and the discussions, only seeing it and only knowing about it from the point of view of their character. So in the context of this film, um, when having shot three quarters or four fifths of the actual whole movie, we got to creating the whole sequence that happens at this house that you've just seen. Um, we had a sort of long 10-day uh, break in the shoot so that we could develop the final part of the action, which in, in the first place, and this is standard procedure with these things, involved setting up an elaborate improvisation in real time with the actors in costume, with, in the real house, with real food and real everything. Um, so that we can investigate what happened. And at that point in the proceedings, which is what you're talking about, um, the actors playing the family did not know that she'd had this black daughter and that she'd met her and that she'd brought her along and all of those things. So that we actually, it means we actually, when you see a bit later on in the film, you see the moment of truth coming out. That is a moment of truth dramatized that the main experience of which came out in an improvisation. So there was absolute truth in there. And by the time you get to the point uh, uh, later when we've structured it and we're filming it, they've already been through that and now they are simply um, drawing on that experience to give the performance. No, what is also interesting is that I already mentioned it, you are not making film about issues. None of your films about issues, but at the same time they deal with things like you know, unemployment, but it's not the issue of the film or the deal about uh, here adoption. But for instance, it's very unexpected because in this film where a black woman is revealed as being the daughter of this, of Brenda Blethyn, uh, there is never at any moment in the film the expression of racism towards this woman, which you could expect. I mean, it would be a, maybe a cliche to, to, to have some racist comment, but there is no... No racist comments on, I, I, on her. I, I, I don't think it's... I d that's true. I don't think it's because... Um, it isn't because I've made a choice between whether they, it would be racist or not. I mean, th th there is racism elsewhere in other of my films, as we know. Um, it's because in this particular context, these people properly react the way they react. And that actually... Actually, if it, if it comes into it, it certainly comes into it at a sub... You can see it um, at a kind of subcon subconscious level. But it's certainly not... That isn't... I mean, it would be wrong to say that um, 
the fact that she's black is irrelevant or that it isn't an issue or that at some level the film isn't to comment on that because the very fact that she is black is in itself implicitly um, commenting on it. You know, it, it, you know. Also, you know, it's interesting you say about um, issues and um, themes and things. Uh, this film came out of the fact that there are people close to me in my family who adopted children uh, for all the usual kinds of reasons. And so for a long time, it, I, I thought I want to make a film that investigates this. But once I started to look at it and research it a bit, I realized that I needed to make a film not so much about people who adopt children, but about the kids who are given away, the kids who are adopted, and the mothers who give the child, give their babies away. And, and that seemed to me what, what it should really be about. Also, incidentally, when I um, researched it, I immediately discovered that in the 1960s, a lot of white girls had mixed race or black babies which, whom, they get, uh, whom they passed on for adoption. So that was one of the jumping off points. Now, I think among contemporary directors, you are definitely an auteur. You know, you can say a Mike Lee film, but what is striking also at the same time is that there is a constant desire of renewal. I mean, when you look at the filmography, for instance, Secrets and Lies follows Naked. You could not imagine more different films. Uh, All or Nothing succeeds, uh, just comes after Topsy Turvy, one about Gilbert and Sullivan, and uh, All or Nothing is really a film more like the one we, we just saw. Uh, Turner uh, comes after Another Year. So there is a desire for you to, uh, of, of not doing this again a, a Mikely film, what people call a Mikely film, yeah. on the contrary. To, to input, to discover new grounds. Yes, I mean, uh, um, and also, I mean, in and amongst all of that is the, what's in some ways is a real cuckoo in the nest, which is happy-go-lucky, which is a whole other kind of, although I do think, incidentally, that anyone that knows happy-go-lucky and naked, uh, I think those two films uh, are interesting to look at side by side, because Poppy... Poppy in uh, Happy Go Lucky and Johnny in Naked are both idealists. And the difference is that she deals with it positively, and he, as we've already discussed, deals with it negatively. But to go back to, to, go to, to what you're actually talking about, uh, Michelle, is that, um, uh, yeah, I mean, I just attracted to and fascinated by, and indeed feel a kind of responsibility to not always dish up the same. You know, not to serve you up the same dish every time you come round for a meal, really. Uh, uh, and um, life is such an expansive and varied thing. And I feel that without deviating from what I suppose you might pomp- I might pompously call the genre, my genre, such as it is, um, that you know, there's all sorts of infinite possibilities as to what you can do with it and where to, what corner of the world. To, to look into, really. So I just think it's, it's, it's really a function of life's rich pattern as much as anything else. So now we have an excerpt of uh, this uh, story about Gilbert and Sullivan, not really a biopic, it's not about the life of Gilbert and Sullivan, but the period of their life. Uh, so we go to, to see this film, which can be translated by Sans que ni tête, topsy-turvy. Thus, 
the traditional Japanese posture as adopted by well-meaning but misguided underlings upon the departure of their august superiors. Thank you. Would that be a recognized Japanese attitude, sir? Not as yet, Grossmith, but I have every confidence that it will become one. Much obliged. I'm sure I've seen this on a vase somewhere. <laughs> Jesse. Thank you, Mr. Bill. Ha! Pretty picture. Hey, Seymour. Charming, sir. Mikado has left. Grossmith. Well, another fine mess you've got us into. No, Grossmith. My line is a nice mess you've got us into, and I should be much obliged if you would play it comme ça. Well, a nice mess you've got us into. Right, sir. Well. No, well. Well, a nice mess you've got us into with your nodding head and the deference due to a man of pedigree. Mr. Grossmith, you are under sentence of death by something lingering, either boiling oil or melted lead. Kindly bear that in mind. Thank you. Well, a nice mess you've got us into with your nodding head and the deference due to a man of pedigree. Merely corroborative detail intended to give artistic verisimilitude to a bald and unconvincing narrative. No, Barrington, an otherwise bald and unconvincing narrative. Is that incorrect? I, I do beg your pardon. No, sir. It has only just occurred to me. To an otherwise bald and unconvincing narrative. Much better. Corroborative detail, indeed. Corroborative detail. Corroborative. 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 Thank you. Corroborative detail, indeed. Corroborative fiddlestick. And you're just as bad as he is with your cock and bull stories. Cock and a bull. Cock and a bull. About catching his eye. Line. And his whistling, whistling an air. And his whistling hair. <laughs> <laughs> Boiling oil, Grossmith, melted lead. Beg pardon, sir. About catching his eye and his whistling an air. But that's so like you. You must stick your oar in. You must put in your oar. Over again. I'd like to give you an update on my new film. Um, every time the old men get up and get back on, each time they become more and more lithe and... Because um, <laughs> the exercise is really good for them. <laughs> by, the, by the end, they're babies. <laughs> so you, you wanted to make, to make a film about your craft, but you didn't choose about the filmmaking, but about the theatre, I mean, opera, operetta. Uh, that was a deliberate choice. You could have made there have been many films about filmmaking, but well, you chose the opera. Yes, I mean, I, I, I didn't want to make a film about filmmaking, and I don't. I mean, apart from anything else, as you say, some people have really cracked it, not least uh, Monsieur Truffaut. Um, so, you know, um, uh, that was one thing. But also, um, I was just attracted to the idea of 
exploring this particular world. You know, I, I, I like this world, and I like this kind of, um, I like this uh, sort of uh, musical theatre. Um, so I, uh, yeah, this is the theatre, of course, of, uh, of Offenbach and Strauss and Donizetti as well, really. And so I, I um, as much as anything else, it was an att being attracted to the subject matter. But it certainly was a way of turning the camera around on us who do this stuff, of taking very seriously the job of entertaining other people. The Americans, I don't know if the English have the same distinction the Americans do between high art and low art. And obviously for you there is no that distinction because Turner is about high art, a great really modernist painter, and uh, this is operetta, it's more the low art, like uh, cartoons mm. or like uh, whatever, genre films. Um, do you agree with that? Yes, I mean, I, uh, there are certain things about that. I mean, I, I, mean, I, I would, that's broadly speaking in a way, but I would suggest, though I don't want to waste time talking specifically about these uh, writers, the writer Gilbert and the composer Sullivan, but actually Gilbert is a great writer and it's great poetry and great, I mean, all the um, 20th century American, the composers of American musicals all look to Gilbert and Sullivan as their main inspiration. I mean, it really is a massive influence, a fantastic librettist and Sullivan is a really a composer to be taken quite seriously, actually. I mean, it's really um, fine music. And so I, I, I wouldn't quite equate it, just uh, wouldn't um, quite say what you have about it. But, of course, it is, to compare it, uh, to talk about it alongside Mr. Turner. I mean, Mr. Turner is, of course, a film about profound artist, um, creating profound work. Um, and Topsy-Turvy is about profound people creating trivial work, you know, and that's the difference. But it's not entirely to be dismissed, I don't think. But that's an, in, that's, um, in part, uh, an aside one. Now, Topsy-Turvy is about a moment in the life of Gilbert and Sullivan where Sullivan wants to go into serious subject to make opera more than operetta, mm. uh, to do the Mikado and not what they have done before. Is it like Mike Lee who wants to make Turner and Peter Lou? No. No? No, because I, I, I don't think there's anything more serious or about, um, I don't think Peter Lou or Mr. Turner are any are in any way more serious than secrets and lies or naked or anything else? I don't think it's an analogy at all. If I may say so. All right. Now we have a last excerpt, uh, Vera Drake, and uh, with again a great actress. So we'll see this excerpt to end this discussion. It's taken so long for. Oh, I don't know, Sid. Someone might have been murdered. Oh, my God's father's Sidney. All right, Sid. No, in one of the houses she cleans in. I mean, he said it was serious, didn't he? Someone's pinched something, that's all. But there are a couple of detectives. Plain clothes, aren't they? Can you answer my question, please? How do you help them out? When they can't manage. When they can't manage. That's right. You mean 
when they're pregnant. So, how do you help them out? I help them start their bleeding again. You help them to get rid of the baby? I've spoiled their day for them now, haven't I? You perform an abortion. Is that right, Mrs. Drake? You perform abortions, don't you? That's not what I do, dear. That's what you call it, but they need help. Who else they're going to turn to? They've got no one. I help them out. Did you help Pamela Barnes in this way? Pamela? Yes, I did. On Friday? That's right. She all right? She nearly died, Mrs. Drake. Last night. She'll live. She's in hospital, but she'll live. As I said in the beginning, it's a, it's a period piece, but at the same time, which relates to the period where you were uh, still a child, but it was, in a way, you, your father was a doctor, but in a, in a proletarian neighborhood. It was a, the neighborhood in Manchester where you lived was, was with people like in Vera Drake, in fact. That's tr all that's true. Um, in fact, however, the um, genesis of this film was because uh, I'm old enough as you are, but in England certainly I, I was. I'm. It's it's relevant that um, I'm old enough to remember what it was like before the 1967 Abortion Act, um, when when people had unwanted pregnancies. These kind of various kinds of people who were illegal abortionists materialised. And I had it in mind for actually about 40 years to, to make a film, to make what turned out to be this film. Um, it was one your, of your oldest projects. Yeah. Um, I, 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 I sort of, it took, I, I don't think we got around to doing it till I, I felt ready to do it really in various ways. Um, it really isn't, with respect, it's not really anything to do with my father being a, a doctor as such. And it's not really, I mean, it's, it, it was natural and proper and necessary to, for it to be set before the 1967 Abortion Act. Um, and it just felt that actually, apart from anything else, it would s the nature of what we would deal with would sit um, appropriately in years closer to the end of World War Two, So that's why it's set in 1950. And it's also a, a portrait. I mean, there a lot of your films are, I wouldn't say choral films, but still with many, many characters, uh, with Naked and Happy Go Lucky and, and Turner. Uh, it's one of your films which are centered on, on, on one protagonist. Sure. I mean, on the whole, I think you could pretty much say that 
one way or the other, all of my films are, the exception being what you may see later, which is Peter Lou. But that's it simply in the nature of the, of the subject matter, really. And about the casting of your actress? Uh, Imelda Staunton? Yes. Well, in this case, I knew that we were going to make a film on this subject. You did not work with her before? No, I hadn't worked. I knew her, and I'd seen her work a lot, and I knew her around. Um, and, you know, uh, my instinct, which turned out to be justified, was that she would be uh, perfect for it, and she was. And she does an amazing um, job, you know. She's in, gen in general, do you do many takes? Pardon? In general, do you do many takes, for instance, this scene? Um, not many, no. Um, again, it's thoroughly... You, you, there are two things. One is that... Um, it's th as we've talked about quite a lot this afternoon, it, it's um, thoroughly prepared. The thing about filming, especially this kind of material, is that you don't need to do any more takes than you need to do. I mean, you know, if it's, if it's there and it's working, um, if the criterion was only, well, we've got that, so let's just put it in the can and move on, then that's good, and, and so... That's one criterion. On the other hand, if you, you, you know, when it, you, you can imagine in that room, and that was shot in a real small room in a small apartment. So you've got the actor, the actors, and there were four actors in there because there were three police uh, people in the room, plus the whole crew and the small room. It's a very, very focused and quite intense atmosphere. And so and it, that atmosphere is geared up to liberating the actor, liberating all the actors, but say particularly if we're talking about Imelda Staunton, to deliver what she's doing. If you do a take and it's really good, then you, you say, well, let's just go for another one and another one. It isn't because there was something wrong with the previous take, and it's not because you simply aren't confident that what just happened was, was fine. It's that the actual... Um, the, the actual experience, the, the process of doing it and doing it again, just it, you, you don't know what you're going to get and you are just making the, uh, the emotional commitment of the, of the moment um, give you more and dig deeper in some way. Um, I mean, very often on films, uh, you know, hundreds of takes, loads and loads of takes happen because something was wrong or the actor couldn't remember the lines or because, you know, a, a Lufthansa flew over or whatever it is, you know. Um, uh, uh, um, but in a situation like this where it's just about getting it, you know, getting it right is... You, you could just walk away after one take, but you just, by exploring it, without even saying, try something different, just letting it organically grow and develop, you know, just takes it further and further to it, to the, the epicentre of its truth, if you want to put it that way. Um, so I don't, we don't, in my films, we don't go for lots of takes for the sake of it. Um, or, you know, uh, um, there are times to do it, there are times when you don't need, you know, you say that, fine, that's, we've got that, let's move on, you know. Thank you very much, Mike Lee, it was oh, wonderful, wonderful listening to you.
Oui, voilà, on pensait que la salle aurait peut-être des questions à poser. J'ai un peu occupé trop le terrain, mais vos questions sont bienvenues. All right, so I have a question about the writing. Um, so you, if I've understood correctly, uh, you do a sort of writing exploration with the actors over several weeks, months, I suppose. Uh, and do you have any limitations or parameters or rules? Let's say you are about to write this film with Monsieur Simon together for your next film. What would you do to, to write it effectively and efficiently? Would you record it? Would you uh, tape the sessions? Uh, how, how does this go about? Um, let me make it clear. I've already said this, but it isn't clear to you, obviously. That um, the preparatory period, it is always six months. It's not three months or four months or a few days. It is always six months. And in that period, we bring the whole world of the film into existence, all the relationships and everything else. We do not write the script. We do not arrive at a finished script. At the end of that period, I will write a structure. It's not a dialogue script. It's a structure with the premise of a number of, scene, of the scenes. On the basis of that, we go out on location, scene by scene, sequence by sequence, in the location, at times without the, uh, and do the work without the film crew and start off by improvising, drawing on what we've done in the preparatory period, improvising it in the location and then through rehearsal in the location, that's to say by stopping and re going back and building it up, write it through rehearsal and arrive at it and then the crew comes back and we shoot for however long it is. And we move on to the next sequence or scene that we do the same thing with that. And we make the film up as we go along. And sometimes, in a number of cases, I could have shot three quarters of the film. I, I illustrated this with what I said about secrets and lies before, without really knowing exactly how it's going to end, or sometimes without knowing how it's going to end. Um, as I said earlier, that is how a lot of art, most art, actually happens. So your question about parameters, I don't think really has a, an answer. There are, other than the fact that as a dramatist, as a writer, as a filmmaker, I have a natural instinctive sense of uh, the built-in parameters of what we're actually doing. Um, you know, uh, 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 and the ordinary things you would expect from somebody doing the job that I have includes having the right kind of sense of balance and economy and uh, storytelling and exposition and whatever it is that are that go to make what would hopefully be a good film so that it's not that we don't start we can't start out saying right here and I think this is what you're asking right here are the parameters because you know I mean the parameters are defined by
Now, in some ways, doesn't it also limit the choice of subjects you have? For example, say someone offers you to make a movie on Che Guevara. Would you refuse it because you don't really know the real people of Argentina or Cuba in 1960s? It's difficult for you to understand them. So the choice of real people, that also restricts you to your area of comfort, right? How, how can you break out of that? To be truthful, I'm, I, I, just, I didn't get the essence of what your question is. I'm sorry. The so question is, if you are trying to uh, make movies about real people, yes. that also restricts you to your zone of comfort, the real world that you know, and you cannot make about subject matters, say, in a foreign world. And in today's international world, you often find a movie maker from, say, United States making a movie about, I don't know, some part of Asia. Will you be uncomfortable doing something like that? Um, I, I would be uncomfortable uh, making a film uh, not in English because the level of communication necessary to do what I do uh, demands that we all really speak the same language literally. Um, I have... I did at one point make a play about Greek Australians in Australia. I also made a film in Northern Ireland, which is as foreign a country as you can find from <laughs> England. Um, and that really was a journey into another place. But of course, in both those cases, I was working in English. But, so that's one part of the answer to your question. The other part, which I think is a more important more important answer is that, you know, it may be that there is, you, you can say legitimately, and I wouldn't dis disagree, that there's a kind of limitation on what I do because it's all in some way um, rooted in what is broadly speaking English or British life. But actually, I don't regard that as an, any sort of uh, restriction for two reasons. One is that actually, I've, as I think we've discussed and you've kind of got the flavour of, I mean, I've felt the, the freedom to go into different areas of society uh, to explore stories. But the other is that I actually, without being um, pre presumptuous or pretentious, I think what I deal with are universal subjects. And I'm not the only filmmaker in the world who feels committed to making films in my natural home territory, um, it seems the natural and right thing to do, partly because that seems right artistically and culturally, and partly because um, there is a film industry in Britain that I am part of and want to support. Uh, that's apart from anything else why I don't, wouldn't dream of and will not contemplate going to Hollywood. Because although they apparently speak English in Hollywood, uh, that's about where it ends, really. But I, I think also that the more you are local, the more you are universal. I mean, I Chekhov, Faulkner, Proust are totally emerged in their own culture. A small, small place, even Paris is a small place, and they are universal. I think it's the. But I mean, you know, with respect, you know, you, you can. Those analogies are great, but you you can make endless analogies by only talking about filmmakers. You know, the important thing is, apart from anything else in the world, that in the world there is world, world cinema and there is also Hollywood. And, you know, 
what cinema is, as far as I'm concerned, is defined by world cinema. It isn't defined by Hollywood at all, whatever Hollywood may think. Uh, uh, and, you know, annually, there are huge clutches of great, truthful, original, confronting cinema being made by filmmakers, each in her or his own territory, really exploring in a universal way. That's what it's about, basically. There's one. Um, my question is, your training as a dramatist uh, comes primarily from theater and watching films, both in writing and direction, is that, would that be accurate? Well, you know, I, I think it comes from watching films and watching plays and reading books and looking at paintings and listening to music and being in the world and engaging with life. I mean, honestly, uh, that's what it's about, really. Abderrahman Sissakou. Oui. Tout d'abord, je trouve extrêmement passionnant tout ce que vous avez dit sur le cinéma. Et l'idée qui vient de naître sur la scène euh, d'inventer un sujet euh, de, deux, de deux personnages qui descendent et qui remontent. Et je voulais savoir, euh, je pense que si vous faites ce film, c'est extraordinaire. Et si vous ne le faites pas, j'aimerais beaucoup le faire, en fait. Well, th there are two things to say about that. One is, uh, while you were saying that, I called my producer in Hollywood. <laughs> and I, I can't tell you exactly what he said, because it was too rude. But the film's off. So you can make it. Encore une dernière question. Thanks. Um, you talk about um, capturing life in um, filming people as people. And I think those notions are obvious to us all, but they um, are certainly not. Um, so when you say you capture life, you must have a certain idea of what life is, or a certain notion, certain um, idea, a, a certain concept about life, which is particularly yours, and which I think you expand throughout your whole, all of your films. Um, there must be some ideas you've developed over time about what that life that you want to capture is um, and about what people are when you say human people as people and you have a very acute um, sense for nuance and depth and I'd like to know where that comes from, how you've developed that um, those ideas that I believe uh, underlie your work. I think, I know it's a, it's a vague question, but. Uh. Well, the good news is that you know it's a vague question. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't know, it's hard to answer it. I mean, you know, um, I mean, I take it from the way you, what you said, you are familiar with my films. Yes, yes, yeah. absolutely. I, I mean, do you think that you can discern a, con a consistent sense of do you have a sense of my sense of life from looking at my film? Yes, I think I do. Um. <laughs> then what are you asking? <laughs> I'd like to know your answer. I mean, 
I, I know you have um, this, uh, I know, just a very good sense about how people can be and how, how people can, for example, um, the relationship of Roxanne, uh, Roxanne with um, his, uh, her uncle um, is very, how, how, how can I say it? It's, it's, it's not the, the main issue of the characters. It's, it's just a, something that you can uh, intuitively see that is correct to the character, something that is properly uh, real to that relationship and th to those two characters. And yeah, I mean, uh, I, 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 I would love, honestly, I'm, I'm not dismissing, I, I appreciate, you're obviously somebody who knows and like, I gather, I assume, I'm writing presumptions enough to think that you like my films. I do. Yeah. Um, and so, but I really don't know how to answer what you. Mm. I really don't. Mm. And I, if I did, I would. Uh, and I'm not dismissing the question. I just, uh, you know, um, what you're saying about the specific relationships of those two characters in Six and Nights, in a way, goes towards answering your question. I, uh, um, I mean, I, all I would say, I suppose for want of wanting to say something. Um, um, you know, there are perfectly legitimate filmmakers and indeed uh, uh, makers of art in other media who, um, who very properly deal in cliches or deal in uh, stereotypes or deal in um, recycling c characters or ideas from other work <coughs> and things. Um, for me, it starts in the street, that's all. Uh, and that isn't to say that I, I, I mean, there are filmmakers whose films are very, very uh, exclusively and consistently out there in the street amongst, you know, poor people or whatever. My films are, I mean, they, they leap all over the place through all kinds of, with all kinds of people. But, but in the end, the inspiration is out there in the real world and I don't do stereotypes and I don't do I don't make films about films or make characters that are referencing other characters I don't deal in people say to me what genre well I, as I've said earlier the only sort of genre it is well it is this genre you know so in a way that's all I can really say to that mm -hmm. uh, in other words but, but what you're asking me about is my own personal view of life and that is you know, uh, it's there, and um, mm -hmm. you know, I don't know what else to say about it. Merci beaucoup. It's a pleasure. <laughs>